Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Welcome to episode 101, which seems to be a great place to be going back to the basics. Our regular contributor, Dr. Alex McDonald, interviews Dr. Francis Chu, MD, who's a family physician in San Jose, California, and he has been practicing for 22 years. He graduated from the University of California, Davis, at the School of Medicine in 1995, and he specializes in family medicine. He currently serves as the program director for the Kaiser Permanente San Jose Family Medicine Residency, and he's the director of graduate medical education at, at KP, which is an abbreviation you'll hear in this interview several times for Kaiser Permanente, and he's also the assistant dean of the KP Silicon Valley Regional Campus. Dr. Chu is also a volunteer instructor of family medicine at Boston University. Dr. McDonald and Dr. Chu have a great conversation about graduate medical education, or GME, and how best to use it to your advantage. Enjoy listening. I'm Alex McDonald. Uh, thanks again for joining us here on the Physicians Weekly podcast. I'm excited to talk today to one of my friends and, and colleagues, and, and dare I even say a, a mentor, because we all have them, Dr. Francis Chu, who is the program director at a program here in, in Northern California. So we are going to talk about GME today, graduate medical education. As many of you know, July 1st marks the start of the new graduate medical education academic year, and we have new residents and interns starting all over the country. It's a wonderful time of renewal and celebration and getting some fresh energy into our academic and residency programs everywhere in the country. And we're going to we're gonna sit down and talk a little bit about GME here. So let's just jump right in here. So Francis, if I might call you Francis, uh, tell, tell us who you are and, and what you do. So hello, everybody. My name is Francis Chu. I'm a family physician. I uh, did my training at UC Davis and ended up in Southern California, just a short ways away from where Alex is in uh, Riverside at KP Riverside, and uh, was there for many years as faculty and eventually uh, assistant program director and ended up up here in uh, Kaiser Permanente San Jose, where I took on the position of uh, starting a new family medicine residency program about seven years ago. And I currently serve in that role as well as a what some people call a mini DIO role where I'm the director of medical education or GME here in San Jose. So I oversee we have a psychiatry residency program as well as medical students, including Boston University students that do their third year core rotations here with us. So uh, and a variety of other students that rotate. So get a chance to kind of see the whole spectrum of UME and GME. And that's what I've been doing up here for the last few years and really excited to talk a little bit about GME with Alex today. Great. And for those who are not familiar, can you describe what a designated institutional officer is? Yeah, so the DIO typically is an institutional official that basically has the responsibility for that particular institution. Because at KP, we're so large, both in Northern and Southern California, and we have folks sort of locally on the ground that kind of serve that role. And we kind of help manage things on the ground locally. But we have a regional DIO in, in Northern California. That's Teresa Acevedo, who actually serves as our DIO here in Northern California. So that's an ACGME designated role. So that's what they do. Great. And 
every academic institution that has an ACGME accreditation has a DIO. DIO, mm-hmm. D- D-I-O as opposed to DOI. There's too many acronyms in medicine. We should someone should fix that. Too too many TLAs, right? Too many three letter acronyms. <laughs> uh, so well, wonderful. Yeah. So you have a you have a really broad perspective here. You you've been a you've been a medical student. You were a resident. You were a faculty member. And now you've started a residency program from scratch, which I'm sure uh, must have been interesting in and of itself too. So tell us why you're an educator and what what brought you to education. Now, those of you who follow you on social media know that your your handle is is FP Teach, and so yep. something tells me that this is this is not just part of what you do, but who you are as well. So tell us a little bit more about why you're an educator, what brought you into ed- education. So I like to call myself the accidental mentor. So I was asked by my program director way back when, after I finished residency training, to see if I wanted to teach residents. And not have anything else better to do, I said, sure, why not? And so I jumped right into it. After a few years of doing that, though, I realized I think there's a lot more to it than just saying, okay, well, this is what you do with this patient and this is what you do with that patient. So I realized I needed to dive a little bit deeper into the education realm and learn a little bit more about theory and maybe practice and things that we can do as far as faculty to develop ourselves um, and be better teachers. And so that's what kind of led to this journey of mine that I started in Riverside and now sort of continuing up in San Jose. I would say that, you know, my interest, I think, is really seeing how we can affect the next generation of physicians. I think many of us who are in education say part of this is an ulterior motive that we want doctors that are going to take good care of us when we get to that stage. And so, you know, it's, it's a little bit of self-preservation, but I think part of it is also to make sure that, you know, we've got good doctors going out into the world and taking care of the patients that need them. And so that was, you know, kind of the start. I jumped on board just because somebody said, do you want to do it? And here I am now sort of leading the charge, so to speak, locally. So it's it's been a, a very rewarding rewarding journey. I will say, you know, as anybody knows who's been in this uh, line of work, not without its bumps and, and you know, twists and turns in the roads, but uh, I've actually had a really, really great time. I've had a wonderful chance to just uh, work with a lot of learners that have come through, uh, both medical students and residents, and it's just been a really great journey. So I'm very happy to continue doing this, hopefully continue to until I retire, whenever that may be. So it, it turns out that there's more to education than just telling people what to do. Who would have known? Who would have thought yeah, that, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the, one of those things, you know, you think you just, you know, as a, as a mentor or as a preceptor, you just tell people, well, here, just do this with the patient and you'll be fine. But if you've ever seen the Bob Newhart mad TV skit saying, just stop it, you right, know how yep. well that works. So. Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, and I think part of what we do here in medicine as physicians, we just do it. It, it almost becomes second nature. We don't think about all those micro calculations and judgments which have gone in our brain so automatically for so many years we don't even recognize it you know it's kind of like you know trying to teach someone to juggle just by showing them how you can juggle you know eight balls at once as opposed to breaking it down into those little incremental steps you know as as many listening on the podcast know that i'm i'm one of the faculty members for our residency as well and i love when i'm trying to teach a suturing particular i have to stop and slow down i can't even like i can't even teach it sometimes because i just do it so automatically it's just muscle memory and i think that's same thing happens. And so that plus, you know, all the theories of adult learning are just so different from youth learning as well, too. And there's multiple aspects that we can we can always work on and improve. And so, you know, teaching our residents and how how to maximize that time, we only have so much time with them to make sure they're good physicians is, I think, much more nuanced and complicated than most people understand. Even physicians who were residents, they have no idea what really went on behind the scenes sometimes as well, too. 
Sure. Just because you're a good doctor doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to teach how to be a good doctor. And so that's that most of us are unconsciously competent because we've mm -hmm. reached that stage in our training in our lives. But, you know, to be able to break it down and go back to the consciously incompetent stage and say, okay, well, you don't know what you're doing. Here's how you get to where you're going to be. Right. Right. And so that's really the breakdown that you have to kind of go through that process. And a lot of times, you know, there's some people who, you know, in the old days, we used to say those who can't teach. And I actually flip it on its head. And I say, you know, if you can teach, then you probably are doing really well because you're able to figure out exactly why you're doing things well. And so that's a really important step for those of us who teach. Yeah, that is a wonderful, a wonderful point. And we should keep, keep saying that over and over again. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. We're recording this year of the waning days of, of June and mm -hmm. soon to be July, where the new uh, residents freshly minted in their long white coats, uh, will be hitting the wards in the clinics, uh, on July 1st. What, what's it like to, to kind of get a new group of residents on board moving through their first weeks as a doctor? You know, you know, the joke is you should never get sick in, in July because you, <laughs> chances are you're going to get a, a brand new fresh intern on your team. Um, right. And honestly, that's not necessarily a bad thing, actually, if you ask me. But anyway, so so what's it like in the hospital, on the wards, getting these new physicians sort of enculturated to their programs and having some floor of competency to make sure we kind of have a starting point to build on their education? Yeah, so bringing people on in their orientation, we at San Jose, we have a pretty long process. We call it ROCS. It's resident orientation and clinical skills. And so we do uh, almost a full four weeks before they get on the wards or in the clinic. And we try to expose them to a little bit of everything so they get a taste of what it's like. Um, I will say that for the new residents coming in as PGY1s, they're all bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. They uh, haven't really developed, hopefully, that cynicism that some of us have. But we want to try and keep that energy going. And it's really very refreshing. Everybody who gets to work with them at the orientation stage is always amazed at how much energy that they have. And in fact, I was just upstairs with our incoming class, and they just did a whole Tabata session with one of our faculty who likes to push them to the limit a little bit. So that's a little bit in your department in sports med. We're getting them the exercise that they need, exercise as medicine. So it's all good. <laughs> I like that. Just make sure you don't have any overuse injuries. Or if you do, I know a good sports doc who can who can take care of them. Sounds good. We'll send them your way. <laughs> so contrary to what a lot of people say, I think July is actually a wonderful time to be, uh, well, it's never a good time to be in the hospital or in the clinic, but, <laughs> but I think, I think it, it, July is actually a, a, probably the least dangerous time because yes, you have all these new residents and interns starting out. Everyone's sort of just bumped up to a new level of responsibility. And I think as a result of that, everyone is, as you mentioned, the, the new residents are, are bright eyed and bushy tailed and very energetic. They'll often go the extra mile. They'll do the extra work to make sure they're really taking care of their patients. Um, and then the, the new second years, the new senior residents, the new fellows, everyone's sort of, it's a bit of that honeymoon period where everyone's excited and they're kind of on their best behavior and they're really energetic before the challenges of the ongoing year starts to break them down a little bit and they get more and more fatigued. So I think if anything, there's so much supervision and oversight of our new physicians. It's really not something people should be concerned about. What are, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, actually, as I was thinking about that, the time that our residents probably are most challenged is the doldrums of winter, um, because Mm -hmm. that's typically when we have them on inpatient services. um, They're working really, really hard. And it's just a long, you know, stretch that they have to go through for most of them. Yeah. And that's here in California, too, where it's not like, you know, zero degrees and snowing. It's nine months out of the year either, too. So I guess we should we should specify other places. It's even worse. I grew up in Vermont where it was, you know, went to medical school in Vermont. And I remember not not seeing the sun for weeks at a time coming in early and leaving late <laughs> yep well you're talking to a guy who grew up in kansas so i totally see that the winter times you're just stuck inside and it's it's you know the seasonal affective disorder is a thing so you know it, it's it's probably not a good time in the winter either so but in any case the good news is that all of our trainees have uh, good supervision especially here in kp we're very proud of that and I think that's something that, you know, we don't send them out and just, you know, have them bend for themselves. There's always somebody there with them that actually can help them if there's something that is necessary. So great. It's always good to make sure we have education and patient safety that always go hand in hand. What changes have you seen recently in graduate medical education? About maybe 10, 15 years ago, we had, you know, duty hours, which caused a whole kerfuffle. Uh, and, and I think we're still we're still finding that right balance. What has recently changed within graduate medical education? And what do you see on the horizon? What changes might be coming down in the next couple of years? So I think, you know, the duty hours were only a small part of what had changed. The other piece that had changed is we went towards this competency-based medical education model, which is instead of just looking at the amount of time that you essentially uh, spend or simmer in some sort of uh, milieu, you're basically talking about people actually demonstrating that they have competency in doing the things that are necessary for that particular specialty or practice. And so that's become something that's much more prominent now. And we look at that in terms of milestones and in terms of something called entrustable professional activities. So these sort of things, for those who are maybe a little bit more seasoned and out of uh, residency training for a while may not have heard these terms, but it's something that we do day in, day out now. And we evaluate our residents and look at where they are in terms of their actual competent skills and trying to make sure that they're developing those things as they go along. Looking ahead, so one of the new things, uh, family medicine specifically just went through its 10-year requirement revision. And so one of the things that we're working on now now is individual learning plans. And so um, the thing about that is instead of making individual learning plans something that's punitive or, you know, restrictive or like remedial, we're really looking at ILPs as a way to further a resident's education to make sure that they're able to focus on the things that they need to develop for their careers. And so it's a really exciting time. I've been talking with my faculty a lot about master adaptive learning. So uh, that's one of the models that's out there that we're talking about that requires, you know, sort of like QI for learning. Uh, it's a PDSA cycle. You try something. If it doesn't work, you got to make some adjustments. You know, don't keep doing the same thing over and over if it isn't working, right? So so I think that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at in this coming few years uh, to try and implement and see how it works for our residents. I know for our residents, they, they hear ILP and they have a little bit of fear and trembling because they start thinking, oh, what did I do wrong? But the reality is we're looking to try to improve them and get them to a higher level. And that's really what the ILPs are meant to do. I think that's such a great point because for so long, education in this country, not just graduate medical education, but medical school and even high school and, and elementary school is all has been curricular based. It's like, here's the curriculum and you go through the curriculum as opposed to being learner based. You know, someone can be very advanced in one skill and, and perhaps, you know, 
less advanced or even uh, below standards in another skill. That's intuitive who we are as human beings. We all have strengths and weaknesses and really focusing the education and the curriculum on the individual to give them what they need. I was reading an article, it dealt with sort of high school education, but I think it's interesting, something you could apply to graduate medical education where it's it's all self-directed. The students do Mm -hmm. a lot of their online learning through computer programs and the learning adjusts to their ability level. And so if they're advanced in math and behind in English, they're going to be exactly where they need to be for their individual ability, as opposed to everyone being at the same place at the same time. It feels kind of intuitive. We should be teaching that way anyway. But when you think about mass education, it's hard to do that as well and, and apply sure. uh, individual centered learning to to you know millions of, of, of students every year too. But when you're talking about you know residency programs, you're you're talking anywhere from six to you know maybe eighteen or twenty individuals per class. Uh, uh, maybe more in some of our large academic centers, uh, you can you can maybe do a little bit more of that individual learning and have it be competency-based as opposed to just time-based or number of procedure-based. I didn't really hear that term competency-based until I started teaching, and it just makes so much sense. And it seems like we have a, a lot of work to do to kind of rebuild the education system around the individual as opposed to the curriculum. But I could go on and on about that one. <laughs> you you could do this whole podcast on your own, Alex. You got all the stuff that you can talk about. It's great. <laughs> well, it, it, people uh, somehow people don't want to hear me just kind of uh, ramble on. It, it, it's it's better if we talk about talk to somebody else as well. <laughs> what changes do you see coming down the horizon for medical education and graduate medical education in general? Well, I think the things that are just according to, you know, what you were just saying there in terms of the individualized and the learner centered way of teaching, it's going to require a bit more time and energy from the folks who teach. And I think that's the part that is going to be a real big challenge for us as we go forward. I know talking about the bigger picture in terms of politics and economics and, and how things are changing. Um, I know there's a lot of challenges on the horizon there. And so how are we going to dedicate enough time and energy to really train the next generation of physicians properly? And I think that's the one thing that I've been, if anything else, I've been basically banging that drum a lot louder. And I think there's a lot of things that interfere with that. You know, um, most recently the postgraduate training license debacle my residents know if you want to you know raise dr chu's hackles just mention the california medical board and the ptl then just see what happens because it's not pleasant but anyway but that being (laughs) said we we only have a few minutes so i'm not i'm not going to go there but no we're not going to go there but those types of things just really you know throw a wrench in all the stuff that we're trying to do and i think there's plenty of work to be done and so when less hassles like that the better i think but we're hopefully coming out of that whole ptl debacle and going into back into sort of more normal situation from when that first started. So it's good. We won't go there. But, you know, as many of you know, I, I love wearing my health policy hat as well. And there's so many pieces which usually well-intentioned elected officials end up creating more problems than they're trying to solve because they don't understand much about healthcare. It turns out, you know, it turns out healthcare is complicated, but we, in graduate medical education, (laughs) and and, and graduate medical education in healthcare is even more complicated, so we won't won't go there. What are the greatest challenges that we face right now in graduate medical education? Well, 
I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Some people would point to like generational differences, but I read an article recently that talked about how those are really just generalizations and not really applicable to sort of the broad scope of things. I mean, obviously each generation is affected by their environment and the culture that they grew up in and, and sort of uh, the influences that they have. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it is really focusing on, going back to focusing on um, what's necessary. like. We talk about AI, we talk about these, all these other technologies that are coming out. And, you know, in the end, I look at physicians as being sort of the human link, right? And all of this, we joke a lot about if it was just a matter of telling people what to do and doing the right thing, you just have a computer, you know, spit out the orders and everybody would be healthy and happy, right? But the reality is, as you said before, you know, medicine's complicated, GME's complicated, but people are complicated. That's part of the reason. And so we have to train our new physicians to be able to handle the folks that come in through the door or these days come in by a phone or by video and try to figure out how to meet them where they are and trying to figure out how to best help them. And sometimes it may not be what they're expecting. And so you get that resistance and you also get that sort of, you know, reluctance to come in. And, you know, of course, pandemic hasn't helped that any. And so we've got all these different issues that have come up that we're now trying to juggle as physicians, as health professionals. And so I think it's one of those things where learning how to manage all those things and to manage people and to work with people, I think is really the key. I mean, the medicine, it keeps changing, right? We talk about half of what you learn in medical school is, you know, not going to be applicable in another five, 10 years. Well, I mean, you know, we keep learning more and more. And so there's always new medical knowledge, but the reality is we're still dealing with people at the bottom of it. And so I think it's really important for us to train those who come after us to know how to do that and to be able to bring together, you know, the medical science as well as the the human component of it. So that's really important for me. And I think that is a challenge because sometimes, you know, people get really enamored with the uh, technology, chat GPT-3 notwithstanding, right? So <laughs> are, we, are we up to three already? I thought we were just at two the other day. It feels like it's happening so Was quickly. It, so. Isn't it three? I don't know. Yeah, I can't I know. keep I, track. It, it advances so quickly. I don't keep track of the numbers anymore. Yeah. So. Well, I think that's it. Like at the end of the day, it's about the human connection is the human touch. Even some of my patients don't want to get care through a computer. They want to come in person. They, uh, the laying hands on a patient, I think is so valuable in that mm-hmm. interpersonal relationship and connection and trust in your physician and, and patients feeling like they're heard and valued. That is, I think, one of the greatest challenges, uh, especially right now, just, just in medicine, but also teaching that because mm-hmm. we're all distracted by so many different things, pulling us in different directions. And really, if we can focus on building empathetic clinicians with fantastic bedside manner. That's almost the most important thing. I've I've had some patients come see me, not that prior clinicians were not excellent doctors, but they didn't have that connection. I even had one patient tell me she was seeing like a super, super subspecialist. She had a very rare condition and she said, oh, they're really good, but I don't understand anything they tell me. I I can't understand anything they tell me. Can you tell me what what they said? So I have to basically go into their note and translate um, because they weren't able to communicate. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the intangible, which, which is so hard to teach sometimes. Well, and I guess that that kind of dovetails a little bit into my next question here about I'm granting you the powers to do whatever you want in medical school and residency <laughs> education. Uh, you, have a magic wand. For, you, Alex. you have a magic wand. You can do whatever you want with medical school and residency education. What would that look like? That's a really tough question. There's so many things that you could do. I, the one thing I would want to do is to be able to have just the variety of clinical experience 
at the learner's fingertips. It's something that we don't have control over. And it's something that is very hard to like make happen for, for our learners, right? Cause you're, you are where you are and the type of patients that you get and the type of cases that come through, that's what you're basically trying to figure out. And of course, as you go through your career, you run into new and different cases and you have to learn from those as well. But wouldn't it be nice to see sort of the true variety of everything that you need, especially those of us in family medicine that we have to take care of all comers walking in the door? I mean, how many of X have you actually taken care of, right? It's really tough. One of our old colleagues who you might know, one of our urologist communication consultant colleagues in Fontana used to say, you talk about the number of patients you've seen. You said, oh, I've seen this before. And then if you've seen two, you've seen um, in my series of patients, right? And then mm -hmm. if you've seen three, you say time and time and time again, you know, my patients have this issue, right? Yeah. So, yep. but it's one of those things where it would be great if really residents and medical students could get the breadth and the depth of training that they need without having to worry about, oh, well, we don't just don't have those here. Sorry. You know, I just was looking the other day, the headline was about pediatric services being sort of minimized because of the mergers and everything else in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So many family medicine programs are having challenges trying to get inpatient pediatric experience, right? And it's because the way that, you know, the system is kind of moving these patients into these very, very niche, very specific areas that you just don't get like a general pediatric ward that you can take care of patients on. Anymore, right? They're mm -hmm. all funneled into a children's hospital. They're no longer in the community. It's just a very different sort of milieu. And so I think that's the one thing if, I mean, there's tons of things I could change, but if there was something I could change that would actually make the education better, it would be to give them the experiences and the clinical exposure that they need everywhere they go. That would be lovely. It doesn't happen everywhere, unfortunately, which is, I think, the challenge. But the flip side to that is actually, hopefully we try and teach them with the skills and tools to be able to kind of manage whatever does come in and find out the information and get the, the care to the patient in a timely way. So no matter what comes in that they've actually learn the skill of, you know, figuring out the medical knowledge and figuring out where do we go with this and accessing specialists or accessing uh, experts um, to be able to figure out what to do for our patients. So hopefully the flip side is also true that even though we don't have that, that we're able to prepare our learners for the future in terms of their careers. Yeah. So, so first off, bonus points for using the word milieu at least twice so far in this podcast <laughs> recording. Um, second of all, I think your point is so well taken about just having to, uh, healthcare is changing so rapidly as a business for better or for worse. And as a result, having to educate within that rapidly changing environment can be certainly challenging. A and then thirdly, for me, I can read about something till I'm blue in the face. I can read textbooks. I can take all the tests in the world, but until mm -hmm. I see a patient with that condition, it just doesn't stick. It doesn't, right. it doesn't get the amygdala involved in the learning process. And how can we make sure we get those clinical encounters and those clinical repetitions in a, an effective and a productive way while not making people be in residency for decades in, right. in some situations? <laughs> and I think the other thing too, to your point is that we are constantly learning and growing as physicians. And I, I, we actually just had our residency graduation last night. And one of my residents was like, thanks for everything. And I was like, well, we're, we're not done yet. Uh, you can call me, you can text me, you know, any questions. I'm always here. You know, the first couple of years after residency, I think there's a huge growth curve, um, mm -hmm. which a lot of, a lot of residents don't really realize because yes, you've been a resident, you, you are now competent, but there's so much more to become a master, so mm -hmm. to speak, when it comes to, mm -hmm. to, to clinical care as well. Yeah, um, 
How can GME adequately create and prepare physicians for for the workforce that our country needs, not only now, but also in the future? Uh, You hear a lot of people are not going into uh, medicine anymore. I think the profession has changed over time. I think there are a lot of people who are disenamored, who said they would never go into medicine again. How do we address that? Because if we don't, again, it doesn't matter how well we're training our GME learners. If we don't have enough of them, we don't have them uh, distributed to the right specialties in the right parts of the country. How are we going to take care? of our our patients? Well, I think, you know, you hear all the dire predictions of physician shortages, and I do agree that that's probably what's coming down the pike, partly not only just because people aren't either sticking around or going into medicine, but also people are practicing medicine in a very different way, right? I mean, in the old days, people would, you know, do long hours and and see tons of patients, but nowadays it's work-life balance. It's about, you know, having your cake and eating it too. And I think, you know, to be able to do that, you're really looking at an even larger number of physicians, actually, that's necessary to really take care of our population. So how do we prepare enough folks and the right folks in the right uh, places? I think it has to do with a little bit of strategic planning. And, you know, not that I'm pining for a healthcare czar to somehow allocate people in the right uh, positions in the right places. That maybe sounds a little bit too uh, authoritarian for my taste. But if you look at, you know, our organization, for example, you know, we're, we're making some of those choices. It's mm-hmm. like, where are the areas where we need physicians? Well, we need family physicians and psychiatrists, of which, you know, both of our locations actually have the residency training programs for, right? We need yep. primary care folks to take care of the breadth of patients that come in to see us. And the vast majority of things need they need to be able to handle and take care of. You know, we also do still need specialists because the specialists are the ones that take care of those specific things that we are developing, you know, new technologies and new treatments and all these things that we are actually as an organization on the cutting edge of as well. So it's a balance of the two. But I think in our case, you know, the primary care, you know, if you hear anything from the primary care physicians these days, it's just the overwhelming wave of work that is coming their way. And I think we need to figure out a way to handle that. And I think, you know, machine learning, AI, big data, all those things are probably going to be part of the way we deal with that, because I don't think we can deal with every single thing on a human level and be efficient at it. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to be able to sort out the things that require the human touch and then figure out how to address them and take care of our patients in that way. Um, So those are, I think, the big picture things. I think, you know, in terms of planning, it's where do we need more training programs? Where do we Mm -hmm. need more doctors? Where do we need to develop the folks that have the skills to take care of the patients in those communities? And so family medicine in in a large way is turning more towards like a community-oriented practice, right? So looking at what the needs of the community are. And so I think those are the types of things that we need to start paying attention to and not just thinking about, well, what are they doing in our hospital or in our clinic? It's what's in the bigger community that we need to actually address. And we know now, like, you know, lifestyle and social determinants and you know, all these alternative medicine sort of pathways that people choose, they have a big impact on how we practice medicine. And so trying to train our residents in that way to be aware of those things and to be able to handle those, you know, as they come in the door. Yep. I completely agree with you. The piece, I think, which a lot of people don't realize, especially here in California, there's mm-hmm. been a huge push for medical schools. So we're mo- opening new medical schools, which is fantastic, except mm-hmm. that doesn't actually create doctors. What creates doctors are residency programs. I, right. I believe the, the statistics, someone out there smarter uh, probably knows the actual number. I believe 80 or, or some odd percentage of graduating physicians end up practicing within 30 miles of where their residency program was. And That's so right. we really want to be specific about creating physicians, particularly 
specifically in some of these underserved and rural areas, we have to put residency programs there because that is that is the ultimate step. Medical school is great and it's wonderful to graduate more physicians from medical school, but without a residency, it doesn't actually help the communities or the patients as well. All right. I, I'll try not to get on my soapbox about that one as well because I definitely can. <laughs> All right. Last question, because this has been a fantastic conversation. We can, we can go on all day. What can physicians do to support GME and residency programs, even if they are not in an, an academic center or, or associated with a residency program? Is there something that physicians can do to really support our GME learners and our residency faculty members? So I think in terms of being in KP, we are fortunate that there's a lot of learners, a lot of different places. And so being open and willing, if you have an interest in teaching, you know, contacting your local GME director or your local, you know, program director and saying, Hey, how can I help? I've got this interest in, you know, such and such of a, a an area in terms of clinical practice and expertise. Any little bit actually helps. We can't all know everything. And so we rely on our team members really to kind of help train our residents the best we can. I'm fortunate here in San Jose, we've got, you know, over 450 physicians, and I would say probably more than half of them are some way involved in a residency or student teaching. And so it's a really big effort. It's not just a few people that are doing this. And so, you know, if you have an inkling or if you have an idea, then, you know, jump in. Or if you're not sure, then, you know, take a look at some extra training or courses or attend faculty development sessions that your directors are putting on, which I'm sure all of our centers have those because we're trying to train up all of our physicians to be educators in one way, shape or form. And so, you know, just, you know, get in on those things and take a listen and see if that's something that really might bring some joy and meaning to your practice, right? We talk about jam a lot. And so we want to make sure that, you know, our physicians have an opportunity to exercise those things and really get the joy and meaning in medicine by teaching and by passing on their knowledge to the next generation. So those are things you can do. I'm very, very excited that we have uh, physicians here that are very engaged. Um, I'll tell you a very brief story. When I first came to San Jose, I was here for an interview. I was waiting in the physician lounge and the chief of anesthesiology comes up to me and asked me what I was doing there. And I said, oh, I'm here to interview for the family medicine program director job. And he goes, oh, we can't wait to have you guys here and have your residents so we can teach them. I'm really excited. That's great. Look forward to seeing you here when, if you come. So it was, that was like mind blowing to me to have the chief of anesthesiology say to me that they were excited about a family medicine residency training program. And so it just goes to show that even those who are maybe in leadership, who maybe aren't doing the teaching to be really tilling the soil and preparing mm -hmm. the soil for the training is really important. And they've obviously done a good job where I'm at here. And even in Riverside, you know, we have uh, all sorts of folks that are just waving the banner for GME and for training. And so we've been able to grow that wherever we are. And so I think that's part of it is, you know, having people that are excited about teaching and, and jumping in and joining us. And even if you're not teaching, being a cheerleader on the sidelines, is a great thing because to have people excited about it is really amazing to see. So well said. We're going to leave it at that. It turns out that medicine is also a team sport, which I like mm -hmm. to say a lot also. Um, and GME is a team sport. Well, Francis, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your, your insights as a faculty member in DIO. And thank you so much for everyone out there listening. And, and thank you for your time. Yep. Thanks so much. It's my All honor right. to be joining you. Thanks so much, Alex. All right. Well, I'll talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 